On the ground is short. Longgren. That's it. And Michigan makes a statement in game one. Hail to the victors. On some level, it pains me to say that, but I'm happy for Michigan baseball. One win away from bringing the NCAA National Championship home to the Big Ten for the first time since 1962. It is a sports pen on ESPN-UB. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along this Tuesday afternoon. We have a lot to get to today, a lot that I want to dive into. We're going to start with baseball. We'll transition to basketball. Might even have a little football to throw in, and then we'll go full circle and finish with baseball. Sound good? Hope to have you along for the course of the next hour here on ESPN-UP. While Michigan beat Vanderbilt, mighty Vanderbilt last night 7-4, the NCAA has not crowned a Big Ten champion in baseball since 1962 when Michigan did so. In fact, a Big Ten team hasn't even been this far, hasn't been to the tournament finals since 1966 when Ohio State did so. And tonight the Wolverines can hoist the trophy. Still got to get through Vanderbilt, they're a good team. Best offense in the tournament against the best pitching staff in the tournament. Go back a few weeks ago before this tournament started. I said Michigan's got the best team ERA at 3.49. Toss up between them and Mississippi State for who has the best pitching staff. I think that question has been answered. So to win the championship tonight, Michigan is going to have to get past Kumar Rocker. You remember him a few weeks ago? He was making headlines in the Super Regionals, also in an elimination game. He struck out 19 and threw a no-hitter against Duke. Vanderbilt kept their season alive. They won the next night. They advanced to Omaha as the number two seed nationally. He will be on the mound tonight for Vanderbilt. Michigan's got to find a way to get by him. Aside from Rocker, there are 13 players on that Vanderbilt team who were drafted just three weeks ago. So you've got 13 players who are going to play professionally very likely next year. Plus a guy who can throw a 19-strikeout no-hitter in the Super Regional round. Yeah, Vanderbilt, no strangers to Omaha, going up against Michigan, one of the biggest long shots in tournament history. Flashback to Conference Championship Week. Michigan was sitting at 40-18. and 18. People thought, oh, 40 wins is great, but their strength and schedule's not. They wondered if Michigan had enough quality wins to even get into the tournament. They go into the Big Ten tourney as a three-seed. They finish a semifinalist there. They get beat out prior to the championship. They wait and they sweat on selection day, but finally they hear their name called as one of the final four teams in the field of four. And now here they are. Three of those final four that heard their name called on selection Monday ended up making the Super Regionals. Two of them made the College World Series, Michigan and Florida State. So Michigan with a big night last night. They take down Vanderbilt 7-4. Jake Blomgren went 3-4. Jimmy Kerr, a third-generation family member to play in the College World Series. Third-generation Michigan man. And he blasts his 15th home run and drives in two. Tommy Henry was phenomenal in the bump. Eight and a third innings allowed three earned runs, struck out eight during that time. He was relieved in favor of Jeff Criswell to get the final two outs of the game. Criswell is a unique story. He was named first-team All-Big Ten this year as a starting pitcher, and then for the postseason, they moved him to the bullpen for special situations. Against UCLA, he came in and he got a save in the Super Regionals, and since then, his role's kind of stuck. He can pitch an inning a night, come out and start the next day. That's what he's going to be doing tonight. Jeff Criswell is going to be on the bump for Michigan. So Michigan baseball winning the NCAA championship wouldn't just be something special, something to behold for this area for the fan base, for the listenership. But it'd be miraculous for the Big Ten. Because this is a conference that can barely play home games before April. they got to go down south and play in tournaments, what have you. 
unless you're Minnesota and you have an indoor pro football stadium in your town. The Big Ten's not known as a baseball power. The hype around Indiana just a few years ago when they made it, it's similar to what happens when a UP team goes downstate for the state finals. No matter how big of a rival you are, when a UP team is downstate playing below the bridge, that's who you're cheering for. The whole UP backs whoever's down there, whether it's Westwood Girls Basketball or the Iron Mountain Boys or Escanaba Softball. No matter who it is, the entire UP is behind them. That's kind of the way it is with the Big Ten and baseball. Even Ohio State's got to be pulling for Michigan right now. I'm a Notre Damer, and I'm pulling for Michigan right now. I hope they do it tonight. Michigan is the darling of the college baseball world right now. So I tell you what, they entered this postseason at 200 to 1 odds, unranked and long shots to win the College World Series. Now they're one game away from doing so. Let me give you some comparisons. Some other notable underdogs, long shots who have gone on to win the championship. Go back to 2011. St. Louis Cardinals were World Series champions that year. 15 games left in the regular season, and they were four and a half games behind Atlanta for the wildcard spot. Vegas listed them at 999 to 1 odds to win, and yet they came back and they did it. How about 1999 staying in St. Louis? The St. Louis Rams. They end up winning the Super Bowl at 300 to 1 odds. How about a couple of college football games in 2007? One of these is going to hurt. But week one, Appalachian State takes down Michigan to open up the season. In the big house. Everyone remembers that. That's comparable as to what it would be for Michigan to come back and win the College World Series tonight. Then a few weeks later, the Stanford-USC game, one of the greatest upsets ever. Stanford was 41-point underdogs against USC. And Jim Harbaugh's Cardinal come down the field and they win 24-23. Tavita Pritchett, remember him? Quarterback for Stanford at that time led a game-winning drive in the final minute. How about 2009? I talked about this a couple of months ago when the Kentucky Derby was going on. Mind that bird at 50-1 to 1 odds. You remember how big an upset that was. Michigan is at 200-1 to 1 odds, so this would be even bigger. But mind that bird was an unprecedented upset at the time in Kentucky Derby history. Buster Douglas, 42-1 to 1 odds. He knocked out Mike Tyson. What about the New York Jets in Super Bowl three? Way back in the day, 18-point underdogs, and yet they do it. And maybe the most impressive underdog story ever, the most unlikely scenario, the U.S. hockey team in the 1980 Winter Olympics, the miracle on ice. They entered at 1,000 to 1 odds. Michigan's not quite there, but it feels like it, considering everything this team has gone through. Michigan with a chance to win the College World Series for the first time in over 50 years this evening. And I tell you what, the entire Big Ten has got to be behind him in this. Sticking with baseball, the New York Yankees tied a major league record last night. They are just mashing the ball right now. And they homered in their 27th consecutive game last night. In fact, it was so nice they did it twice. And guess what? They have a chance to set a major league record tonight, and they're probably going to do it. Their lineup is just completely unfair. They have got guys who are all-star finalists that are sitting on their bench right now because guys are starting to come back and get healthy. They're playing Toronto tonight. Toronto's not a very good team. But I tell you what, no matter who was on the other side, who was opposing New York, they would still set that home run record tonight. As of right now, i got to believe it's a Yankee-Dodger World Series. As much as I hate to say it, those two look unbeatable right now. 
I tell you what, the Yankees aren't done making moves. You know they have a great offense. They still need to get better pitching. Still need to upgrade that rotation a little bit. And I tell you what, I'm going to lose my ever-loving mind a little over a month from now at the trade deadline when they trade for Marcus Stroman. When they get Stroman from the Blue Jays, I'm calling it Stroman to the Yankees. It's going to happen, and I'm going to lose it when that happens because the Yankees will be World Series favorites. So I tell you what, the Yankees, with the way they're able to mash the ball, it certainly reflects the way that baseball is trending. Does that spell bad news for traditionalists, baseball purists, guys who like seeing pitchers hit? Because while offense is certainly picked up, strikeouts certainly have as well, it's made it tougher on pitchers when they come to the plate. Baseball loves the way baseball is trending right now. Commissioner Manfred, he loves this high-octane offense because it gets butts in the seats. And baseball doesn't have a money problem, they have an attendance problem. They've got all the money in the world, but they have an attendance problem. They need to get people interested, home runs, long balls, highlight reels, that's how you do it. The Yankees fully encapsulate that. That's why they're having success this year. The Minnesota Twins, their breakout this season, leading the majors in home runs. That's why they're having success this year. The Kansas City Royals are the fastest team in baseball, far and away so. They lead the major league in steals, yet they're dead last in their division. They have one of the worst records in baseball because that's not how baseball games are won anymore. They're not won by speedy contact hitters, and they're not won by playing small ball. They're won by hitting the long ball. Does that spell trouble for the National League and the way they play baseball, specifically pitchers batting? Because while offense has risen, pitchers have never struggled more offensively. Now, I'm a believer, if I'm a manager, my worst hitter doesn't bat ninth. If I'm a manager and I'm putting my lap together, I put my worst hitter eighth. So I would put my pitcher in the eighth spot. I believe your nine hitter should be like a pre-leadoff hitter, that you can interchange your two and your nine in your batting lineup. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's the trend we start to see. National League managers start to bat their pitcher in the eighth spot as a norm. There are a few who do it. It's starting to come around. But I could see it being the norm. But I can see it being the last gasp before baseball completely adopts the designated hitter. The majors are trying to do anything they can to increase attendance, increase interest. And getting guys who mash, getting one extra power bat in the lineup might do it. That's why I wouldn't be shocked the way baseball is trending to see the DH become a norm for baseball as a whole. Tell you what, before we go to break, the other New York baseball team has been in the news, not for something nearly as positive. Mets manager Mickey Calloway and starting pitcher Jason Vargas have both been fined for an interaction with a reporter on Sunday. So Mickey Calloway, who's struggling to say the least during his tenure as a Mets manager, which is into its second year, took his frustration out on one particular reporter. His starting pitcher, Jason Vargas, joined in as well. Yesterday, Callaway was asked about the incident. Listen to his response. You tell me if this sounds something like, I'm not going to apologize for this, but if I do, will that lessen the fine? Take a listen. We're going to have a public outburst like that because of an outcome. I mean, every, you know, Deli Martin punched a reporter one time. You know, I mean, it, it's just part of part of this game. You know, um, it, it's something that uh, you know. I, hey, I, I'm a passionate guy about baseball, and uh, I'm a tough competitor. And uh, sometimes you'll see it with the umpires. Sometimes you'll see it with the players. And 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 the thing is, is you guys don't need to see it uh, directed towards you guys. That that's you guys have a job to do. I understand that. I've always understood that. Um, and, and you guys don't need it directed at you. 
That, that, that's that's the, the number one thing that, that I know. Galloway spent the majority of yesterday's press conference avoiding questions about the incident as much as he could, but that's what was on everybody's mind. Him throwing profanities at reporter Tim Haley. Galloway acknowledged he wasn't proud of the situation, but refused to apologize for it. Said it was something he wasn't proud of, but he was stepping very carefully as to not say sorry. Eventually, he heard enough chatter, he heard enough chit-chat behind the scenes. He felt the need to recall all the reporters, get them all together 65 minutes before first pitch last night. Changed his tune a little bit. Here's what he had to say then. Just real quick, you know, I understand that uh, I got some feedback that, you know, I wanted you guys to know that in my, my meeting with Tim, I apologize for my reaction. I regret it. I regret, you know, the distraction it's caused to the team. Like I said earlier, it's something that uh, we'll learn from. It's something I'm not proud of. I'm not proud of the distraction. I'm not proud of what I, I did to Tim. For that, I'm definitely sorry. If that was the only piece of drama that the Mets were involved in this week, I think they'd be past it by now. I think things would have smoothed over. But you know there's more to the story. There's been speculation about Callaway's job security. Last year, his first year as manager, they got off to such a hot start, and then they cooled off significantly, kind of like what Seattle did earlier this year. So it appears the Mets may be thinking toward the long-term future. They see the writing on the walls. They're five games under 500. they They're not going to compete this year. They're going through a slump right now. Reports say that Mets GM Brody Van Wagenen texted a Mets staffer to tell Mickey Calloway to pull Jacob DeGrom from a game. And of course, Van Wagenen was asked about the incident. You don't get involved with in-game strategy with Mickey. No, no, no contact him in any way. No, to, to no, no, no in-game decisions are ever are ever called down from the dugout. We're not allowed to communicate with uh, with Mickey or his coaching staff during the games, and we're not doing that. And as far as the specific episode in the report about you having Degrom removed in Arizona, is that? Inaccurate. Yeah, so I'm not going to get into the specifics of one game or another, but I can tell you that um, we do communicate with the training staff in the training room when there's a player that suffers an injury. Anything that is health-related to uh, to a player's status, we do communicate with that. But as far as performance-driven decisions in-game, that's Mickey's call and the coaching staff's call. Somehow I don't fully believe him. Mickey Calloway is the Mets puppet right now. It's important to keep in mind Mickey Calloway was not hired by this front office. He was hired by previous GM Sandy Alderson one year prior to Van Wagenen. Does Callaway need to fear for his job? Probably. Probably does. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But his teams on the field have not performed like they need to. Like the Mets expect. And if you're in year two of your managerial career, you're getting these distractions off the field with reporters, you're at odds with a general manager who didn't hire you, there's a little reason for your seat to be hot for you to start to sweat a little bit. Let's take our first time out when we come back. The NBA Awards last night. Good night for Milwaukee. Plus, is the NBA going more global than we think? That is next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along this Tuesday afternoon. Last night, the NBA awards ceremony where several regular season honors were divvied out. And I say regular season and it's frustrating because we had a 75-day gap between the final regular season game and the awards ceremony. And keep in mind, postseason doesn't factor into this. I either wish that it would, or that we would hurry up and have this ceremony during the playoffs. 
then the problem is a true winner, a guy who's competitive, all he's going to be focused on is the playoffs. He's not going to come to New York or Los Angeles for an award ceremony. But here are a few of the honorees from last night. A good night for Milwaukee. Mike Budenholzer wins NBA Coach of the Year for the second time. I thought it was the right choice. I've said for a while I think Coach Bud deserves it. It's hard to argue with the resume that he put together, winning the Eastern Conference regular season crown and getting to the conference finals before falling in six games to the eventual champions. MVP. That one was a little more controversial, but I still think they made the right choice. Giannis is the rightful MVP. James Harden, he's been great. He really has. Did he put up a good enough season to deserve MVP this year? Sure he did. I think Giannis deserves it a little bit more, though. And I think the right choice was made last night. Giannis edges out Harden to win the MVP award. So now you've got the NBA Coach of the Year and the NBA's Most Valuable Player coming back with their core group next season. There may be a couple of bounces away from being NBA champions. I still think if they won Game 3 of the Eastern Finals that went to overtime that they would be the defending champions right now. And maybe it's a good thing they didn't, because that makes that core group want to come back. That deters Chris Middleton, Malcolm Brogdon from leaving. They know they had a good enough team to do it. Maybe this gets them all back and makes them hungrier. Other awards from last night. Luka Doncic takes Rookie of the Year honors over Trey Young. Atlanta fans were upset about this. I mean, they were really steamed about this on social media. Atlanta fans don't have a lot to be happy about, at least Atlanta Hawks fans. But the voting was not close. Out of the 100 voters who had a voice, 98 voted for Luka Doncic of the Dallas Mavericks. Luka Doncic ends up winning Rookie of the Year honors. Rudy Gobert wins his second straight Defensive Player of the Year award, the Stifle Tower. All-star snub because he's a defensive-minded player. However, he does get recognized, wins the Defensive Player of the Year award for the second straight season. How about NBA award streaks? Lou Williams, Sixth Man of the Year for the third straight season. And this is controversial because one team had two nominees for Sixth Man of the Year. Lou Williams and then Montrez Harrell. You can't have two guys up for Sixth Man. One of them's got to be Seventh. And one of them was moved out of the starting lineup briefly. Then he came back in. He shuffled out of it. That was the Clippers' reasoning for being able to nominate two guys for Sixth Man of the Year. But man, I tell you what, there's never going to be a better Sixth Man than Lou Williams. Just name the award after him already. Lou Williams already the NBA's highest career scorer in bench points. He's just made to be a Sixth Man. I don't know what it is. I don't get it, but it worked out for Lou Williams. And then Pascal Siakam takes home most improved honors. I would wager that even as recent as the conference semifinals, unless you've been watching basketball real close, you didn't know who Pascal Siakam was. The general basketball fan, until Toronto really started becoming the focus of the NBA late in the postseason, a lot of fans didn't know who Pascal Siakam was. And he turned out to have one of the best playoff runs in recent memory. Pascal Siakam winning most improved player. So I tell you what, the way the NBA awards shook out last night, it's really interesting with the FIBA World Cup coming up. Because basketball is a global game. Always has been. But for a long time, the U.S. has been the stronghold. We've been the dominant power when it comes to basketball at the world stage. Sometimes we're in trouble when we don't bring our full team to the Olympics. You have guys like LeBron, Curry, Durant. They choose to sit out, choose to get extra rest instead of going play at the World Cup or the Olympics. Sometimes we get a scare, but most of the time we walk away with the gold. We just so happen to have a FIBA World Cup coming up here in a couple of months. And the U.S. is still certainly the basketball juggernaut of the world. 
But we are seeing basketball expand globally. And all you got to do is look at the recipients of the major awards at last night's NBA awards show. The Defensive Player of the Year, he's from France. The Rookie of the Year, Slovenia. Most Improved Player, Cameroon. And this year's Most Valuable Player? He grew up in the streets of Greece doing odd jobs. Heck, the NBA Championship is in Canada this year. The NBA champions are a team from Toronto. You might think of basketball at the world stage. You might think of the 1992 Dream Team. That U.S. Olympic team that was absolutely untouchable. Their best games came when they played against each other in practice. Nobody came close to touching them. Arguably the greatest team ever assembled. That's what people think of when they think of basketball at the world competition stage. But as we saw last night... It's not necessarily the case. Basketball is a global game, and it's continuing to grow that way. Hey, I want to take a break a little bit early. I've got an extended segment planned for later in the show. But before we go into another timeout, a few other news and notes regarding the NBA last night. The Trailblazers and the Hawks engaged in a rare one-for-one swap. Evan Turner is heading to Atlanta in exchange for Kent Bazemore and Stephon Marbury. Remember him? Brief career in the NBA, fizzled out after going to New York. Well, he is now getting into the coaching business. 42 years old, yesterday he was introduced as the new head coach of the Chinese Basketball Association's Beijing Royal Fighters. Maybe a shot that he gets to coach Jimmer Fredette. The Suns turned down Jimmer's player option, so he's a free agent. He is going to be heading to Golden State for summer basketball. He's going to play in their summer league team. Jimmer and the Warriors. Warrior fans hope they haven't fallen that far by next season. Hey, I tell you what, let's take a timeout when we come back. NBA free agency, the craziness is about to hit. What to watch for, who could be moving where next in Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you Tuesday afternoon. Glad to have you along. Here's your Sports Center update. The St. Louis Blues have finally signed head coach Craig Berube to a three-year contract. It officially removes the interim tag from his title. I don't know why it took so long. Should have happened once he got you into the playoffs after taking your last place team and your salary cap mess and turning you into champions. The Baltimore Orioles signed first overall draft pick Adley Rutschman to a record $8.1 million deal. And finally, Zion Williamson has quickly made a new friend in New Orleans, Saints quarterback Drew Brees. Brees gifted this year's top NBA draft pick with a signed jersey and a message that said, Passing the torch, who dat? Told you we'd have a little bit of football in there. By the way, this weekend, the UP All-Star Game at the Superior Dome here in Marquette. Be sure to get out there. You're going to see some fun, quality football and a really cool event. A few other things I want to bring to your attention before we get into NBA free agency Tomorrow morning, Northern Michigan will be introducing their new head men's basketball coach. The successor to Bill Saul has been named. You'll meet him tomorrow. We find out who he is tomorrow morning at the Izzo Mariucci Room on campus, 9 o'clock. It is open to the public. Be sure to come out, meet the new coach, welcome him to Marquette. And a programming note, we will have the MLB London series on ESPN-UP this weekend. We will have the ESPN radio broadcast right here on ESPN-UP. Listen on AM and FM or with our app, 
Red Sox and Yankees Saturday afternoon, then Sunday morning in London. That means the In Case You Missed It show is getting pushed back to 1 o'clock on Sunday. It's going to be some fun baseball being played across the pond. All right, so we are officially less than a week away from hitting NBA free agency. You know behind the scenes what's going on prior to Sunday night when the clock strikes 6. But it is going to get absolutely crazy, and this is going to be one of the craziest summers we've seen in a long time. Photoshop jersey season is officially upon us. You see guys wearing jerseys on social media, teams they've never played for. Last year, LeBron was the big one. LeBron was one of the only ones. This year, you have got superstar talent on the move all over the map. Kawhi Leonard, what's he going to do? Is he going to stay in Toronto? Is he going to go elsewhere? You know that he wants to go home to Southern California. He's from that area. He's meeting with the Clippers on July 2nd. So don't expect Kawhi to make his decision in the first couple of days of free agency. I tell you what, Kevin Durant's injury completely shifted the balance of power as far as free agency goes. Kawhi Leonard is now the offseason prize. He is now the most valuable commodity on the market. Because there's a lot of uncertainty as to what Kevin Durant will be able to bring to the table when he does take the floor again a little over a year from now. He'll miss an entire season on the wrong side of age 30, and he's coming back from an injury that's really tough to come back from. Are there teams that will still take a chance on him and give him the max because the upside is there? Absolutely. The Knicks will. The Nets probably would. But a lot of those teams that were in on Durant, now they're not so sure. Now they're starting to become free agent hermit crabs when it comes to Durant. But New York needs to do something. They went out and cleared enough cap space where they can bring in two major free agents. They drafted the guy that they were supposed to with R.J. Barrett. And the plan was lure Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving to New York, and you would have a big three of Kyrie, KD, and R.J. Barrett. They hoped it would be Zion, but they took the best available guy. Now we know Kevin Durant's not going to play next season due to injury. We don't know what he's going to be like after that. And Kyrie has done his darndest to show you that you don't want him to be your top option. If you're that front office, what are you going to do? What are you going to tell James Dolan? A guy who banned a Knicks legend, Charles Oakley, from the arena. A guy who bans reporters from coming into the locker room, which, by the way, cost him a $50,000 fine earlier this week. A guy who banned a fan for yelling, sell the team at him from the crowd. What are you going to tell him if you get all this cap space? You get rid of the one talented player on your roster and you send him specifically so that you could have enough money to bring in two major superstars? And then you come up empty. You come back empty-handed. You don't get anybody in this offseason. Then what are you going to do if you're that front office? The Knicks can sell optimism. That's why they would go in on Kevin Durant. Because they can keep fans optimistic for Durant coming, no matter how healthy he's going to be or in what shape he's going to be. That's how they can sell tickets. And they can do that by saying, look, he might be hurt right now. But we're going to get Kevin Durant here in about a year and hopefully he'll still be the player that he was when he was with Golden State, when he was with Oklahoma City. That's what the Knicks are trying to do with this. Now, I said the Nets would probably give Kevin Durant the max, and I think they will if they get the chance. But their plan is to bring in both Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. Kyrie would play alone this year, pair him up with Durant next season. That's their plan, is pair Kyrie and KD and make KD over in Brooklyn. Unlike New York, they made the playoffs this year. They ended up being a pretty good team toward the end of the season. The Nets can market those two as, these guys are missing pieces. We were so close this year. We had a good run. 
Now we add these two guys, maybe that takes us over the top. Maybe that turns us into an Eastern Conference favorite. Next year could be rough, but they know they're not going to be champions next year. They're not going to compete for a championship next year. Because if you get this deal done, if you find a way to get Durant and Kyrie to Brooklyn, then your future probably doesn't include D'Angelo Russell. So next year, you're going to upgrade Kyrie over Russell. It is an upgrade, but still not enough to make you a true contender without Durant. Reports today say the Boston Celtics are interested in signing Kemba Walker. They have the money to give him the max. That's probably what it would take to get him out of Charlotte. Again, Charlotte being the only team Kemba said he'll take a pay cut for. I'm conflicted as a Boston fan with that move. Kemba's a great player. But he's extremely inefficient. His shooting percentages puts up a lot of shots, doesn't distribute the ball well, although he did torch the Celtics a few times last year. That being said, I thought after the draft they had some clarity about where they wanted to go. They seem to have their backcourt set, and they want to invest in a big man this offseason. Now it's looking like they want to spend all their cap space money on a guard, albeit he may be the most talented player that is realistically in their grasp. And I don't even know that he is. I don't even know that they're going to be able to snap him up. So a few things do concern me. Thankfully, I do trust the Celtics front office. Danny Ainge, Trader Dan, he'll figure things out. He always seems to. Let's take another timeout. When we come back, it is part two of our special segment. We are going through all 15 National League teams. Their most valuable, most improved, and most disappointing player for the first half of this season. That's coming up next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any part of the show today, check it out on demand. Get our free mobile app from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Just look up ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along as we close down the shop on this Tuesday afternoon. Yesterday, I went through my list of all 15 American League teams, where they're at in the standings, what their playoff odds are, who their most improved, most valuable, and most disappointing players have been up to this point. As again, we reach the first half of the Major League season this week. So today, part two of our two-part series, we go through all 15 National League teams, and we do so top to bottom in the standings. You ready? Here we go. The top team in baseball this year, the Los Angeles Dodgers. They have 54 wins, 26 losses. Their MVP? That's a no-brainer, guys. He might be the MVP of the National League this year, although don't tell Brewer fans that. Cody Bellinger hitting 352. He's got a 702 slugging percentage. OPS over 1100. 17 doubles, 2 triples, 25 homers, and 52 RBI. Plus, He's patient at the plate. He's not just up there to slug. 50 walks, 49 strikeouts. Cody Bellinger is the Dodgers MVP. Most improved? How about Hinjin Roo? He's got a career-best nine wins already this season and a 127 ERA, also a career-best. He's issued just six walks in 99 innings, and he struck out 90. He struck out 89 all of last year. And again, we're just hitting the halfway point now. He's already got one more strikeout than he did all of last season. Rue has turned himself into a top-of-the-line starter, taking a huge step forward this season. Honorable mention, Max Muncy. If I give a position player most improved, I give it to Max Muncy. Most disappointing, this one's tougher for me because I think injuries factored into it, but A.J. Pollock, it's been disappointing. He was a top-tier outfielder. He was an all-star with Arizona. 
And he comes over to L.A. in the offseason. Looks like a wonderful signing. Bolster is an already incredible outfield. And Pollock struggled with injury this year. He's hitting just 223. His OPS, 617, six extra base hits. And he's only got 14 RBI. How about this, though? A guy who wreaks havoc on the base paths? Just one steal. Pollock looked like an all-star coming over to an already all-star caliber outfield. And it just hasn't panned out that way in L.A. So I tell you what, those are the Dodgers. How about the Atlanta Braves? Second best record in the NL at 46 and 33. They're going on a hot streak right now. Their team MVP? You want me to say Ronald Acuna Jr., don't you? If not, you probably want me to say Ozzy Albies. Their team MVP? Someone who has better stats than both of them. Freddie Freeman. He's hitting 316. His OPS just over 1,000. 21 doubles, 21 home runs, 61 RBI, and 41 walks. He's deserving of team MVP. He leads the team in hits, runs, average, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, OPS, doubles, homers, RBI, and walks. Freddie Freeman has been the most valuable Atlanta Brave this year. Quietly, he's done so. Because the attention goes to Acuna and Albies. But Freddie Freeman has quietly been the Braves' best player. Most improved? I don't think anyone saw the jump Mike Soroka was going to take from last year to this year. 8-1, and 207 ERA, 63 strikeouts in 78 in the third innings. He's only allowed three home runs. Again, in just over 78 innings. So he's keeping the ball in the ballpark, and he's doing it effectively. Last year, he started just five games, had an ERA of 351. He's brought that down to 207 as a regular starter. Mike Soroka has taken a huge step forward. I don't think anyone saw it coming. Most disappointing? Ender Inciarte does it for me. A couple of years ago, he was an all-star. He was a guy that looked like he was going to be the next big thing for the Atlanta outfield. This year, he's hitting just 218, 8 extra base hits, 9 RBI, 27 strikeouts in 40 games played. It's been tough for Inciarte. He's starting to see his career trend downward. Third best record in the National League is the central leading Chicago Cubs, 43-35, and their MVP. He was a National League MVP runner-up last year. It's Javi Baez. No drama there, no debate. 284 average. He's got a team-best 551 slugging percentage. Also, an 874 OPS, 18 doubles, 3 triples, 19 home runs, 50 runs scored, and 51 runs driven in. You can make the case for Chris Bryant. But Javi Baez has been the Cubs' best player thus far. Most improved. What if I told you there was a guy who was an all-star last year? And he's continued to elevate his game this year. It's going to be an all-star again. That's Wilson Contreras. The Cubs catcher got in a little skirmish last night. But I tell you what, he is hitting a team-best 290 this year. His OPS, 934, also leads a team. He's got 11 doubles, 15 home runs, 42 RBI. Oh, he's finding creative ways to get on base. He's been hit by a pitch eight times this year. Does need improvement on defense. He's committed nine errors, which is the most by a catcher in Major League Baseball this year. But the offensive numbers don't lie. Certainly improved his offensive game. That's why I'm giving him most improved Cub. Most disappointing? And I could take in off-the-field actions and add it to his poor performance on the field and say Addison Russell, but I think strictly on the field, you Darvish has disappointed me more. 2-3 and three record, 4.75 ERA, 44 walks, 45 earned runs. He's been touched for 16 home runs in just over 85 innings of work. A couple of years ago, Darvish was a top-of-the-line starter. The only knock against him was he could get you to October, but once you got to the playoffs, he struggled. Now he's struggling in the regular season, too. Tough to believe where he was a couple of years ago. Injury certainly factored into that. 
but it is tough to see the decline of you Darvish over these last couple of years. The top wildcard team, the Milwaukee Brewers. Got a few listeners probably turning up the radio wanting to hear these. 42-36, second place in the Central. MVP? Is there any debate? He was the MVP in the NL last year. Very well could be again. That's Christian Yelich. 342 average, OPS 1,179. Leads the MLB with 29 home runs. His 63 RBI, second most in Major League Baseball. And how about this? He's drawn 42 walks. Doesn't just need to slug his way on base. He steals bases like an expert. 17 on the year. And his war? 4.8 wins above replacement. Christian Yelich making his case to repeat as National League MVP this year. How about most improved? I'm going with Zach Davies. Who could have seen the turnaround Zach Davies has done this year? If I would have asked you who would be the top starter in the Brewer pitching rotation this year, probably would have said, like, Ulysses, maybe? Zach Davies has turned it around. Last season, he had an ERA of 477. He's brought that down to 306. He was 2-7 and seven last year, only working 66 innings. This year, he's 7-1. and one. He's already worked 82 and a third innings. In that time, he's walked just 25 and struck out 53. Zach Davies taking a major step forward the Brewer pitching staff really needs. Most disappointing? Well, that'd be Ulysses, their opening day starter. He just doesn't have it right now. I don't know what's going on because last year he was the anchor of a Brewer pitching staff that really didn't have a lot of flash. And they look for him to continue to take steps forward this year. But right now he's just 3-8. and eight. ERA is at 5.88. He's been touched for 14 home runs and 67 in the third innings of work, and he's walked 33 during that time. Honorable mention, Jesus Aguilar. An all-star last season, but a huge disappointment offensively. But the Brewer offense hasn't been their problem this year, and that's why I'm going with Ulysses over Jesus for Brewer's most disappointing. The second wildcard spot right now, currently occupied by Colorado, 41-37. and 37. Their MVP, Nolan Arenado, 326 average, OPS of 977. He's drawn 17 walks. He's struck out just 19 times. We're almost to game 80. 19 strikeouts for Nolan Arenado. He's putting the ball in play. 57 runs scored, 62 driven in. His war, 4.4. And a lot of that factors into his defense as well. One of the best defensive third basemen in baseball. Most improved, I'm going with John Gray. 8-5 this year, a 392 ERA, which is down 140 points from last year when he allowed a career-high 98 earned runs. He's well on pace to bring in that number down. He's already got 103 strikeouts. His career-high came back in 2016 with 185. Most disappointing, another no-brainer, Kyle Freeland. Not even in the majors right now. He was fourth in the Cy Young voting last year. And now he's been sent down to the minors because he can't figure it out. Manager Bud Black was asked about how he's doing down there. His answer? Okay. Just okay. Nothing positive, nothing encouraging. Bud Black, a former major league pitcher himself, not encouraged with Freeland's progress even in the minors. This was a popular pick for the Cy Young champion this year. He was supposed to be the anchor of a starting rotation that was going to carry the Rockies to an NL West championship, or at least a playoff berth. Right now, they're hanging on to the second wildcard spot. They're not going to win their division. Kyle Freeland, a big reason why. They were counting on him this year. But at the major league level, 2-6 and six record, 713 ERA, 50 runs allowed in 59 in the third innings, 
He struck out 49 this year. That's on pace to finish 50 short of his season average. So those are the five teams in playoff contention. How about the St. Louis Cardinals? Just on the outside looking in, they're half a game out. They started so well, then they faltered. Now they're starting to figure things out again. Paul DeYoung is their team MVP in my books. He's hitting 264, OPS is 825, 19 doubles, 13 homers, 35 driven in, 35 walks drawn, and his war, 2.6. And a lot of that has to do with his defense. Paul DeYoung is the best defensive shortstop maybe in all of baseball. He has turned an MLB leading 59 double plays and his 991 fielding percentage also best among shortstops. Paul DeYoung getting it done offensively and he's getting it done in the field. Most improved. It's tough for a reliever to get on this list, but I'm going to do it and I'm going to go with John Gann. 7-0 record, 240 ERA, His move to the bullpen this year has paid big dividends. 7-0 record, 240 ERA. He has been one of the shutdown relievers St. Louis has gone to in the late innings. Last year, primarily as a starter, he was 7-6 with an ERA of 3.47. This year, 12 walks, 37 strikeouts, and just over 41 innings. And the biggest thing has been his command. Last year, he had five wild pitches. This year, none. Again, to the halfway point. Most disappointing, this one's kind of tough. I went with Jose Martinez just because he had such a good year last year. He raised the bar so high for himself. If you look at Martinez's numbers this year, they're really not bad. A 291 average, 13 extra base hits, and a war of 0.3. And I give him most disappointing because last year he hit 306. His batting average down 15 points from last year. Again, not bad at all. To hit 291, a lot of guys would kill for that. But it's disappointing because we thought he was going to take another step forward. The Philadelphia Phillies, boy, they are in plummet mode right now. They got a huge win last night, 13-7 over the Mets, plummet mode themselves. But the Phillies have lost a grip on a playoff spot. They're fading away in the Eastern Division. They got to find a way to turn things around. They sit 40-38. and Their MVP this year? I tell you what, tell me if you've never heard of this guy before, but it's someone you probably should know, Scott Kingery. He leads a team with a 326 batting average, 625 slugging percentage, and a 995 OPS. Oh, and by the way, his war is the best at 1.8. He's hit 14 doubles, 9 home runs, 40 strikeouts in 45 games, so he's putting the ball in play for the most part. You'd think the team MVP was supposed to be the guy they shelled out $330 million plus for. Well, that kind of money at 246 batting average is not going to get you team MVP. It gives you a case for most disappointing but I've got somebody else in mind for that. Most improved, put an asterisk next to this one because it's a mid-season improvement. Jay Bruce, he came over in a trade from Seattle. Their rebuild is in full swing, and Bruce's numbers have improved dramatically, getting out of Seattle and coming to Philadelphia. His batting average sits at just 232, but that's jumped over 70 points since the trade. Now he's got guys protecting him in the lineup. He's batting 288 since being traded to Philadelphia. His power is starting to come back. His production overall increasing now that he's out of the Mariner lineup. Most disappointing Philly, Michael Franco. Although he had a good night at the plate last night, his season as a whole has been overall disappointing. He's batting just 214. That's down 56 points from last year. 20 extra base hits, 35 RBI in 70 games, and is on base percentage 285. He's fine defensively. In fact, he's pretty good defensively. But he started this year with high offensive expectations. The Phillies look for him to be a key component in their playoff run. And he's just not lived up to it. 
Next on the list, the Arizona Diamondbacks. They are even at 40 and 40. Kettle Marte, a breakout year. He has been their team MVP in my books. He's hitting 312, OPS of 946, 17 doubles, 4 triples, 20 home runs, 51 driven in, and 53 runs scored, plus 4 stolen bases. A breakout year for Marte? Looks like he's found his home in Arizona. Honorable mention, though. Zach Grinky can't underestimate the job he's doing or the job he did last night. Most improved, how about Christian Walker? He's hitting 269. That's up over 100 points from last season. He's on pace to finish with 15 more doubles than last season, 20 more home runs, and 20 more RBI. Christian Walker getting his chance to be a part of an everyday lineup. He is the most improved Arizona Diamondback. Most disappointing? I'd give it to Zach Godley. They wanted him to be a starter so bad. And he's just not giving it to him. 3-5 and five record, 682 ERA. They've had to move him to the bullpen. He's given up 49 runs, 11 home runs, and 63 in the third innings. And he struck out 46. The San Diego Padres sitting at 38-40. and 40. Should their team MVP be the guy that they gave $300 million to? It should be, but it's not. In fact, their team MVP is probably going to be trade bait here in the coming month when we hit the trade deadline. Hunter Renfro. There are already a few teams that are talking to him. They would love to get a guy like him on their roster. 251 average, 929 OPS, 12 doubles, 23 home runs, 44 RBI, 4 of 4 stealing bases this year, and his war is at 2.3. Honorable mention, Eric Hosmer. Quietly putting together a pretty good year. If I have to go with the most improved... I hate to do a rookie, because what's he improving from, the minors? Yet at the same point, I have to give it to Fernando Tatis. He's given the Padres a lot of reason to be optimistic. I'd say he's deserving of this because he's probably excelling at a faster rate than they thought he would. 323 average, slugging at a 571 clip, OPS is at 985, 8 doubles, 4 triples, and 8 home runs. He's driven in 23, stolen 9 bases, his war is at 1.6. I'm giving it to Fernando Tatis. Most disappointing, Craig Stamen. Last year was a comeback year for him. He went 8-3 with a 2.73 ERA, and he looked like he was bringing that momentum into this season. He started out well, but he slowed down significantly. Right now, sitting 5-4 with a 4.62 ERA. Strikeouts are down, earned runs are up. He's allowed nine home runs after giving up three all of last season. The Washington Nationals sit 37-40, and 40, another team that thought they had a playoff push in them. That's not going to be the case. Their MVP, Max Scherzer. 6-5 and five record this year. He's better than that record. Hasn't had a lot of run support. 2.62 ERA, a whip of 105, 146 strikeouts at the halfway point in the season as compared to only 22 walks. 146 Ks, 22 free passes. He's only allowed eight home runs and 106 in the third innings of work. His war, easily the highest on the Nationals at 4.4. Most improved, how about Juan Soto? A 20-year-old who made his debut last season, he continues to elevate, continues to raise the bar for himself. Hitting 305 this year, OPS 933, 15 doubles, 3 triples, 12 home runs, 48 RBI, and 5 stolen bases. He is bound for the All-Star Game in Cleveland here in a couple of weeks, and he can't even buy alcohol until October. Juan Soto, looking like he could be the next big thing in all of baseball. 
Most disappointing. Few guys I could have given this to. I'm going to go with Jan Gomes. A former all-star catcher with Cleveland was traded six months ago to Washington, and he's gone through multiple slumps this year. They just can't keep him in the lineup. He's not producing well enough for you to keep him in the lineup. He's batting 220. His on-base percentage under 300, 10 extra base hits, 20 RBI, and he has a negative war. Jan Gomes has not been the catcher he was in Cleveland. He's not the catcher Washington thought they were getting when they traded for him. The Cincinnati Reds, they sit 36-40. and 40. Jose Iglesias is their team MVP, former Detroit Tiger. 294 average, 753 on-base percentage. He's hit 11 doubles, 30 runs driven in, 38 strikeouts in 69 games. So he's putting the ball in play with the best of them. Most improved, Derek Dietrich might be a weird answer. And if you look at stats alone, you might not think he's the most improved Cincinnati Red. But I tell you what, you watch him and the production value, he makes a strong case why he should be most improved. I'm giving it to him. His batting average is just 229. That is down from last season, but his production is up. Home runs are up. RBIs are up. He's got 18 home runs right now. He had 16 all of last season. He has 40 RBI right now. He had 45 all of last year. Oh, and by the way, talked a little bit about this on the show yesterday. He leads Major League Baseball in hit-by-pitches. 15. He had six this weekend alone when they played the Brewers in a four-game series, set an MLB record. What's weird? He's pretty good at getting hit by the pitch. He crowds the plate. We know that. Forces pitchers to try to go inside on him. But back in 2016, he led the majors with 24 hit by pitches. 24 in a 162-game season. He's keeping the ibuprofen company in business. Most disappointing, I'm going with Tucker Barnhart. 191 average, down 50 points from last year. OPS 605, 10 extra base hits, 18 RBI. That's trending down. 50 strikeouts, that's trending up. Maybe he misses Homer Bailey as a battery mate. I miss it now that those two have broken up, now that Bailey is with the Royals. Because can you think of a more country-sounding pitcher-catcher duo than Homer Bailey pitching to Tucker Barnhart? You just can't make it up. Pittsburgh Pirates also at 36-40. and 40. Their MVP having a breakout year, Josh Bell. I like Josh Bell a lot. Crushed that home run to the Allegheny a few weeks ago. Really burst on the scene after that. Hitting 315, OPS over 1,000, 28 doubles, 20 home runs, 66 driven in, war just under three. Josh Bell, Pittsburgh first baseman, he's been their best player. Most improved again, I don't like to give it to a rookie. But I'm going to do it because Brian Reynolds has been surpassing expectations for a guy who made his debut this season. 362 average, 928 OPS, 24 extra base hits, 28 RBI. Not bad for a rookie campaign. Most disappointing? I'm going with Gregor Polanco. Just went on the injured list. He had a torrid start to the season. His OPS through 15 games was 912. And since then, he's been in a slump that he can't get out of. Hitting 242 this year, OPS 726, 15 extra base hits, 17 RBI, 12 walks to 49 strikeouts. His war, negative 0.4. The numbers aren't awful, but compared to the way he started, it's disappointing. That's why I'm giving him most disappointing Pittsburgh Pirate. Honorable mention, though, Chris Archer. He's not been the guy that Pittsburgh has wanted him to be when they brought him in. The New York Mets and all the problems that they're going through right now, 37 and 42. Their MVP, maybe the lone bright spot on that team, Pete Alonso. How about his rookie season? 276 hitter, 
He is the team leader in slugging percentage at 642, OPS just over 1,000, home runs with 27, and RBI with 61. By the way, his 27 home runs not only lead the Mets this year, but they have broken a club record for home runs by a rookie. Previous record holder? Daryl Strawberry with 26. That's pretty good company for Pete Alonzo. Most improved player? I'm going with Jeff McNeil. He's one of those guys that people like to fall in love with. One of those utility players that's never really gotten his shot. He's starting to get his shot. He's batting 342 this year in a limited role. His on-base percentage, 407. He's slugging at a 494 clip. Doubles, home runs, RBIs, and walks all up significantly this year. And especially without Cespedes, McNeil is starting to give him that everyday option the Mets are looking for in the outfield. Most disappointing New York Met? I'm going with Juris Familia. He's no longer the closer. They brought in Edwin Diaz from Seattle. And Familia, I don't know if it's getting to him or what, but they moved him into the setup role, and the former All-Star has faltered big time. 781 ERA. He's blown four saves this year when he has had the chance. He's walked 21, struck out 28 in 27 two-thirds innings of work. The San Francisco Giants, 33-44. and 44. Their MVP? I'm going to give it to their closer. He's been their best player this year. Will Smith, a 1-0 record, 2-0-1 ERA, a whip of 0.77. He's given up seven earned runs in 31 and third innings of work, and he struck out 47 in that time, a perfect 20 of 20 in save opportunities. Will Smith will likely represent the Giants at the All-Star Game here in a couple of weeks. Most improved Giant, oh boy, this was a tough one. If you do anything today, I challenge you, make a case for who should be the most improved San Francisco Giant this year. They have a lot of guys who are in the downslide in their career. Let's go out and get Kevin Pillar. Let's go out and get guys on the downslide of their career. Not a lot of guys have been improving on that Giant team. This was a tough one. This was probably the toughest one I had to do. I'm going to give it to Pablo Sandoval, though, because of where he was a couple of years ago, not only production-wise, but his relationship with San Francisco and their fans as he made his return. But he's hitting 282 this year. His OPS is 872. Extra base hits, he's got 24. 26 runs batted in and a war of 1.2. Most disappointing, Brandon Crawford, former All-Star, former Team USA shortstop, He's hitting 214 this year. He's getting on base 28% of the time. OPS, just 611. 18 extra base hits, 65 strikeouts, and he's got a war of negative one. I don't know where Brandon Crawford's career is going or why it's going down like it is. I hope he turns it around, though, because I like Brandon Crawford. Last one, the Miami Marlins. Would you be surprised to know that the Marlins have 30 wins? They're 30 and 46. I thought their record was a lot worse than that before I looked it up. Their MVP this year, former New York Yankee Garrett Cooper, hitting 324, gets his chance to be in an everyday lineup. He's making the most of it. OPS 913, 22 RBI. And how about this? As much as he can slug the ball, he's a contact hitter. He struck out just 14 times this year as an everyday starter. A war of one and a half. And his ability to play multiple positions defensively is a huge asset to Miami. He can play first. He can play the outfield. Garrett Cooper has been the best Miami Marlin this year. Most improved, I'm going with Brian Anderson. His average is down, much like Derek Dietrich. His average is down about 20 points to 254. Again, not bad, but his productivity is why I'm giving him most improved. He is on pace to exceed last year's totals in extra base hits, home runs, 
RBI, he's already done so in stolen bases, and he's cut his strikeout rate in half. Brian Anderson is the most improved Miami Marlin. And finally, most disappointing, Brewer fans, you'll love this, Lewis Brinson, hitting 197 this year. He's got a career-low OPS of 510. How about this? Two walks to 28 strikeouts, five extra base hits, all of them doubles. The Brewers flipped Lewis Brinson for Christian Yelich. Never forget that. So that is our list for the National League. Hope you enjoyed it. The 15 National League team's most valuable, most improved, and most disappointing player. Had a lot of fun with it. Took a lot of time, a lot of research, but it was fun. Hey, I tell you what, with that, we are hitting the 5 o'clock hour. Again, I appreciate you tuning into the show and hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. I'm back on tomorrow, same time and place. Enjoy tuning into the College World Series this evening. Hopefully tomorrow... We're talking about Michigan hoisting the trophy, and I'll have some audio to play for you. Until then, signing off from the ESPN-UP WZAM studios, my name is Tanner Hoops. Thanks for listening to the Sports Pen.